This is nice. Um, open up to Joel, the book of Joel. Joel is an interesting uh, prophet. It's not tied to, unlike most of the prophets, it's not tied to any particular reign of a king. Um, and so people debate what, uh, what historical situation and to whom it's actually speaking. Um, that's not so important to, uh, to nail down. I think we can get what this book wants us to get without knowing that for sure. Um, but one thing that I've come to learn just as a, as a rule of thumb in Bible study is that, um, in addition to like what's actually in the text, the, the actual order of the books is, is fairly trustworthy. Like it makes sense, you know, especially since the, the 12 minor prophets are in this same order, both in the Hebrew scriptures, like BC and in the Protestant canon and, and, pretty much any canon, the, the prophets are in this order. And so there's something about Joel coming second that is, is significant, right? Um, so I've come to trust the, the canon, the, the ordering of the books, that it, it, it plays an important role, and that it's, it's trustworthy, right? Um, so why is Joel here? Well, Hosea was fairly easy to figure out why that comes first. Uh, it's just the earliest. He prophesied, well, he's one of the earliest of the minor prophets. He was speaking to Israel before Israel went into Assyrian captivity. And so that makes sense. Um, and then Joel comes and it's not tied to any particular reign. Um, and then when, when we move forward to Amos, it is, uh, Amos is, he prophesies during the days of Uzziah, so roughly the same time frame as Hosea, uh, Uzziah, and Jeroboam, the son of Joash. And Amos has uh, prophecies to offer to northern Israel. So here's what my, my leaning is, and I, will, I would never say this authoritatively, but where I lean is that Joel is roughly in that same time period, directed towards southern Israel uh, or Judah. And... Um, is warning Judah on the heels of some sort of actual disaster that happened, some sort of famine or pestilence that involved lo- locusts destroying a lot of crops, is working within a historical situation to say something generally about the way God deals with his people. All right? So the purpose of Joel isn't so much to call out a particular king for doing a particular thing, but the purpose of Joel is to warn the people of Judah of the coming day of the Lord and what the day of the Lord is. All right, the day of the Lord is a, uh, it's an idea that's covered a lot in the prophets, but we'll talk about that here in a second. But I think verse 3 Verse 2 and 3 give us a good idea of what the book of Joel is for. All right. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it 
And let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. So why is Joel here and why is it not tied to any particular reign? Because the book of Joel contains a perennial message. He says that's to be told to every generation. Right? What I'm about to prophesy to you, Judah, I want the elders to hear it and take it to heart and teach it to their children and tell their children to teach it to their children. So Joel, in a way, is kind of a... Um, he is a, he's a pr- prophetic book about prophecy in general, what the purpose of prophecy is. And the prophetic message in a, in a package that can be delivered perennially down through the generations. Does that make sense? So here in the beginning, or the second book of the, the book of the Twelve... Uh, we get a kind of a general archetypal uh, prophecy to the people of God. Um, all right, so let's just get into the book. The, the book is, it's short, but it's pretty dense. Um, but it's basically in three, three main sections. The first section has to do with a disaster that has happened. Um, this locust disaster. And um, God calling the people to wake up, realize what's going on, repent, and return to him. And then he shifts into, in chapter 2, a second main section where he says, because in the future, in in the near future, there's going to come an army of invaders that aren't locusts, but they're, they're men. And it's going to be like this locust plague that you've had, and it's a whole army coming to wipe you out. And he's going to say, and the thing that you learn from the locust, that's the same lesson you need to learn from that coming invasion. All right? And then he says, in the third section, he says, but if you get it right, if you, if you heed the message, I will come and I will have mercy. My, my heart isn't to always judge to always bring disaster my heart is to have mercy and if you will repent here's what i'm going to do and then he shifts to a final stage not just the immediate future or the near future but the ultimate future he says because here's what's ultimately going to happen i'm going to come and i'm going to wipe out every enemy of the people of god but in addition to that those of my people who are unrepentant And they're all going to go, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to pour out my spirit, and I'm going to dwell amongst my people. And I'm going to be here. And not only that, but the the, the land itself, which has been destroyed and cursed, the land itself is going to be renewed when that happens. All right, so that's the basic story that he's telling, the basic message that Joel has. Um, So let's just kind of walk through, and then I have some thoughts um, to take home with us. All right, so tell it, your children of it. Let's pray. I, I, I haven't prayed yet, so I need to pray. Father, thank you for this book. Thank you that it's here. And uh, Lord, I pray that we would hear, that our generation would hear this, this message that you've preserved in this book. Lord, I, I pray that we'd take heed, that we would understand the way that you operate, the way that you work, the way that you bring about judgment, the way that you show mercy, the way that you call your people to repent, and what will result when your people do that and when your people hear you.
turn their hearts towards you. Father, turn our hearts towards you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this disaster that's described, it says what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust is eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust is eaten. And a lot of people think that this might be like different either species of locusts or different like stages of the, you know, the larva and the, I forget what it is. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, the pupa and then the, I don't know, the leg bones connected to the tailbone. and The hopping locust is eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. And then he says, wake up. Wake up. I mean, we know locust play. We know this sounds like an Exodus plague, right? He says, there's been a plague, but not on Egypt, on my people. What's going on here? Wake up. Realize you're in the same boat as the enemies of God. You're under the judgment of God. And this disaster is evidence that The way you are living isn't inviting blessing into the world. The way you are living is inviting a curse and judgment and plague into the world. Right? So he says, wake up, drunkards. So one of the reasons why I think this is written toward the same time period as Hosea is because it was a relative period of prosperity. And they had grown, you could say they'd grown drunk or grown just complacent, satisfied with their prosperity. He says, you got to wake up, okay? Don't let this disaster come and go without realizing what's happening, right? Don't just write it off and it must be global warming or something like that, right? Wake up, realize what's happening. He says, a nation has come up against my land. And this is a, a nation of locusts, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth and has laid waste. So what has happened is the people are at odds. They're not living faithfully to God, and that has caused curse to come into their lives in the form of this plague, and the land is cursed because of it. Right? So this is an important theme in, uh, in Joel, that when the people's relationship with God, when, when the people are at odds with God, when they are opposed to God, Then a curse comes, but the curse doesn't just affect them. It affects also the land that they dwell in, right? This this should call to your remembrance that whole theme of God making a place for his people, putting his people in that place to cultivate it, right? To bless, to take dominion, and to flourish. And when they sin, when they act independently of God, that place itself becomes something other than what it w- was intended to be. And they cannot now be in God's place anymore. They're cast out. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. A little bit of a nod to Hosea, right? The themes in Hosea. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. So Joel talks a lot about the, the temple and sacrifice and the priesthood, how that's not what it should be. Right? In the priesthood, temple, that was the place where the presence of God was to be cultivated. Right? The, the, the operations of the temple and the priesthood were to invite the spirit to dwell in the midst of the people. 
That's why the whole, the whole purpose of the temple and, and the priesthood and all of that. And the offering system. It was also that the, that the Spirit of God, the presence of God, could come and dwell amongst his people. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers. Right? These are people that are cultivating the land. It's gone wrong. Right? The land is cursed. Harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple. What we see is the opposite of Eden. Right? Because of the, way, because of the sin of, the, of God's people, the land itself is languishing. And what they are supposed to be in the land, which is agents of cultivation and flourishing, the opposite is going on. And so all of this is to cause them, wake up, look around you. Is the world the way it should be? No. So what do we need to do about it? He says, put on sackcloth and lament. The problem is you. The problem is your heart. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. And he says, get serious about this. Right? You can't just go through life and say, well, this is inconvenient. I mean, grocery prices are really high this year. Gosh, what's going on? You know, that plague was really bad. Egg prices, you know, the bird flu. This is terrible. I can't believe eggs cost so much. No, he says, wake up. Now, I don't know if that's comparable, but that's, that would be what would happen. Like the, the source of life, the source of food is in peril. And he says, don't just, don't just get fed up with that. Realize what's happening. Your sins have caused a curse to come into the land and the, the, the answer is for you to realize the source of the problem, to reestablish a holy relationship with God so that through you, the land can flourish. And this is the first time where he says here in verse 15, the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. So the day of the Lord is a theme. It's not one particular day, right? There isn't one day of the Lord. There are a number of days of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is when the Lord acts decisively in judgment or salvation. Like I would say the Exodus was the, was a day of the Lord, right? When, when God came down and delivered his people from bondage, that was the day of the Lord, right? Today, the Lord has brought salvation. It's when God visits and delivers judgment salvation on his people. And there's lots of time in between these days where God is sending warnings. The day is coming. The day is coming. The day is coming. Right? I am about to, you know, (laughs) you don't want me to get to the back of the car. Right? When I get back there, it will not go well for you. It is the day of death. That's a crude analogy, but that's what it is. It's like, listen, I'm giving you space, get it together, because the time is almost done for you to be able to get together. And so he's saying this, we, we've, we've come through something of a day of the Lord. But then in chapter two, it turns toward, he says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. The day of the Lord is coming. It is near. 
a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before. So you thought locusts were bad. Well, you're about to, to come under the judgment of the Lord's army. God is raising up an army to come and judge his people. And he says, listen, fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness. We're coming, and it's not just you. It's you in the land itself is going to experience death and destruction. Verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. The point of this is not to destroy you. The point of this is to turn you back to me. Right? This is the just punishment for the way you are living. And I'm getting ready to enact that punishment. Yet even now, he says, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And this is probably looking forward to the day when, yes, even Judah would go into captivity. Right? Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. These are all kind of the chief attributes of God, the ones that he revealed to his people in the very beginning at Mount Sinai when he revealed himself to Moses. This is who I am, right? And I'm not going to clear the guilty, but I'm faithful to a thousand generations, right? I can't just let things slide. But even in the midst of judgment, my heart is to have a people and to dwell amongst them. He relents over disaster, Disaster isn't his ideal solution. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And so he says, God's going to continue to punish his people for their waywardness. But the whole point of that is to bring them through and to, to cause their hearts to fully turn toward him. And then when that happens, we see the results. Verse 18, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach to the nations. I will remove the northerner from you. So he talks about coming and defeating their enemies. And this would probably means that the very enemies that God raised up to judge them. Right? And you've got to hear in this echoes of Exodus, right? God raised up Pharaoh so that he could deliver his people and, and, and prove his might. God raises up armies. He raised up the Assyrians. He raised up the Babylonians. But as we saw all through the, the, the major prophets that we went through, 
It wasn't because God was pleased with their lives over his people's. He needed to use them to judge his people. But just as soon as he's done judging his people, he's going to judge Babylon, judge Assyria as well. Right? They have not earned a place over his people. He's using them, using their greed, using their uh, imperialistic you know, drive, using their bloodlust to judge his people. But then he's going to judge all of their wickedness as well. The problem that God has found himself facing is that his solution to the world, which is his people, have also turned from him. His solution, the people that were supposed to be a blessing to every nation, have found themselves mingling with those nations and taking on the sins of those nations. And so the same curses that are on those nations are now curses that are on the people of God for their faithlessness. And this is the issue that God's dealing with. How am I going to continue to try and and call the nations back to me, call the nations to repentance, when my own model nation has turned its heart from me? What am I going to do now? But he says, "When, when you return to me, he's talking to his people, when your heart comes back to me, I'm going to defeat the enemies. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land. And then he says in verse 21, Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The land's been renewed and restored. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication and has poured down for you abundant rain. There's a purification that comes, and it's like at the end of the Lion King, it's great when all the the rain flows and all the gross ugliness. You know, that always stuck with me as as a kid, how fast everything changed, you know. But it's how I see the renewal of creation happening when God starts to to send blessing into the earth. It just wipes all the desolation away. And the rain finally comes and the drought is over and stuff starts flourishing again. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. It's not just a, all right, I'll finally dole out enough for you to get by. It's an overabundance. Right? This is grace. This is, this is what Paul talks about, how when God... Uh, God not only in, in Jesus broke the curse of Adam, but he went way beyond even what Adam originally went there in, in Romans 5. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And then here's the, the real climax. You shall know, verse 27, that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. So chapter 2 describes this future army, and he says, but then when that happens, you know it's time to repent. It's a call to repentance. And you need to know that even though this army is looming and destruction is looming, that I desire your heart. And when you turn with me, turn to me with all of your heart, I will banish the that army. I will send them packing and I will restore the land that has been languishing and I will be there myself in your midst, which was always the point. 
And then we get into um, the final section of the book, which then looks forward to the ultimate future. Uh, verse 28, and it shall come to pass afterward. And the Septuagint says in the last days, and that's what uh, Peter quotes in Acts too. It shall come to pass in the last days. And that's significant. We'll talk about that here in a second. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. All right, so ultimately God's going to not just return to the temple, but he says there's coming a day when the spirit of God isn't going to just be in one little place and on a few select people at a time. It's going to be on all flesh. All right, so this is an amazing statement here in Joel. This is really amazing language. I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. It was, I mean, you can't, you can't have the spirit of God. I mean, that was just for Moses. That was just for Joshua. That was just for a few guys. That was just for these prophets that he, wrote, that he raised up. Here and there, and maybe a priest that was really godly, and maybe someone would have the spirit. But he says, I'm going to pour it out. Just like the, the grain is flourishing and the wine is, is, and the oil, it's all flourishing. He says, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Overabundance and a flourishing of the presence of God. This is the final destiny that he says for the people of God. And it's not limited to old or young. It's not limited to male or female. It's not limited to... Um, free or slave. It's not limited to your economic status. It's all flesh. It's an amazing statement. The whole human race. I'm going to pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire, columns and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So this is that ultimate day of the Lord that he says, and this is when God himself is going to come down and the Spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh. And then in chapter 3, he describes the completion of this work. He talks about the enemies being ultimately defeated. Everyone's gathered into the valley of judgment, and God removes those who are opposed to him. And then finally, at the end of chapter 3, he says, you sh So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, and this is the, the, renew, the new heavens and the new earth, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah. All those people who were my pawns in judging my people, they're going to be done away with. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. And so when God's judgment has its intended effect, it leads to the true repentance from the heart, of God's people. And then, as a result, God moving on the behalf of that people to deliver them from every, all of their enemies, to heal their land, 
and to take up residence in their midst. All right? When judgment comes and the people of God understand what's happening, when they're awake and they see it, when their eyes are opened, and they turn with all their heart to the Lord, then God will deal with every last one of their enemies, everything that is opposed to them, and he will deliver them, he will heal their land, and he will take up residence in their midst. Joel is preaching the gospel, right? I mean, this is a story that needs to be told in every generation because it's the gospel. In Acts 2, you could make a great case that the first Christian sermon ever preached was on Joel. Because it's so, in, in, in Peter's mind, and it, it should be in our minds as well, it so clearly encapsulates the fullness of the gospel, the heart of God in the gospel. All right? So go to Acts 2. Describes Pentecost coming and the, the tongues of fire coming. And then in verse 14, it says, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, which, by the way, that's who is addressed in, in uh, Joel's book, those in Judea and in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. Remember, uh, Joel said, wake up, drunkards. You know, stop being drunk. He's like, well, we're not drunk. We're actually awake. It's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. What is what was uttered? This outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It says this is what Joel was talking about. The Spirit has been just dumped all over us. And he goes, what a time to be alive. And, it, it, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh... Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and my female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's saying, in response to what had just happened in Jerusalem, this guy Jesus being crucified, he says, it's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has come. And we need to recognize that this is the day of the Lord. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, where does that fit in Joel's story? Jesus has become the punished people of God at the hands of lawless men. And it was God's plan to raise up lawless men 
to punish the sin in his people, except this is the twist, that Jesus didn't do anything wrong. Jesus was the only pure Israelite there ever was. And so God says the plan, that's always been the plan, to judge my people using lawless nations. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Lawless men subjecting him to death, and then God goes to work. He raises him up, defeating death itself, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And he quotes Psalm 16, verse 29. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, he foresaw that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades. Just like God said, I'm never going to abandon you, even if I destroy you, even if I raise up an army. If you turn to me, I will relent of disaster. Nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he gets back to the pouring out of the Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now, listen, verse 37. When they heard this, when they heard about the crucifixion of Jesus... The death of Jesus at the law at, at, at the hands of lawless men, it says they were cut to the heart. The judgment showed itself. The judgment came. The day of the Lord came, wreaked all of the fury and vengeance of, of God on the sinfulness of mankind in the flesh of Jesus. And they saw that and they were cut to the heart. Judgment finally got through to the people of God when it was the judgment that was intended for them on a pure and spotless lamb. How many times had God judged them and they kept returning to the same things? And he says, I'll do it myself. I'm going to come down, but I'm going to take all of that on me. And you're going to watch me and you're going to look on me as all of the destruction that you have deserved falls on me. And then it says they were cut to the heart. Finally, finally, they, he said, rend your hearts, not your garments. Years of rending garments, years of, of almost there, not quite all the way, fake repentance, repentance that leads to more repentance and more repentance. And finally, they're cut to the heart. He says, what shall we do? And he says, repent, which is the, the cry of the prophets. Come back, return. Return and be baptized, right? The rain's falling and the purification that comes and the restoration that comes. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, right? This was an expectation of 
the, the messianic age, that somehow God was going to deal with sins and be able to forgive the sins of his people. Well, he's done it. It's here. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter describes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost as a fulfillment of what Joel envisioned happening. Judgment in the crucifixion of Jesus. Mercy for those who repent. Restoration of what was cursed. Right? Repent and you'll be baptized. And in in being baptized, you will be wiped clean and cleansed of your sin. And then the pouring out of the Spirit on all the, on all the people. Peter was preaching Jesus as the Messiah to Jews, right, here in this first sermon. They knew what they were hearing, right? We got to hear this with Jewish ears. He was preaching Jesus as the Messiah to Jews, using the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as his main exhibit, his main argument, right? That's where he starts and that's where he ends up. They're saying, what's going on? He says, The Holy Spirit's been poured out on all flesh. Now, let me back up and tell you how we got here. Judgment, mercy, repentance, turning, and then the Spirit of God falling. He works backwards from the pouring out of the Spirit. He fills in the rest of the story saying, Jesus has done this. And then he brings it all the way back to the Holy Spirit. And his ultimate offer, his appeal to them, is that they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, be baptized, get your sins forgiven so that you can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This was the ultimate hope of Israel, that God would dwell in the midst of his people, that God would be here. It's what everything pointed to. It's what Eden was. It's what we lost. And it's what we've been working our way back toward, or God's been working his way back toward all along. Finally, in Jesus, it's done. It is finished. So I have, one, I have one primary question for us to ponder as we respond to Joel's preaching of the gospel and, and then Peter's filling in the story for us. And the question or the, the challenge to you is that do you, do you understand the significance, the significance of the Spirit's availability to us as, as one of the best things about the gospel. Maybe, maybe the best thing about the gospel is that now the Spirit has been poured out. Right? When you think about the gospel, what are you thankful for? You're probably thankful for atonement, right? As, as, as am I. You're probably thankful for forgiveness of sins, Salvation. But it's funny to me how, how Peter was saying, guys, it's here. How do we know? Because the Spirit's been poured out. Now, it took atonement and salvation and Jesus and all that, that whole story of judgment and mercy and repentance. It took all that, but here we are. And here is the Spirit is poured out. And the presence of God is with us in the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus died. He says, God raised him up. And being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you are seeing. It's almost, and I don't want to diminish the work of the cross because it was absolutely necessary, but it was also preparatory for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Right? Jesus didn't just die and come back to life. Yay! My sins are taken care of. He died, was raised, ascended, received, and poured out. That's the gospel. That's, that's, I think that's why Pentecostal churches call it full gospel churches, you know. Don't forget the Holy Spirit. But that's what we're talking about tonight, the full gospel. Not the denomination full gospel, but the full gospel, as Peter preached it. And we have to ask ourselves, what was all that for? What was all the judgment for? What's a, what is atonement for? So that now God could dwell in the midst of his people. Right? That's what we've been heading toward the whole time. That's what the gospel, that's what the real good news that Peter's preaching to the people of God, that's what he's fired up about. This is the day of the Lord. And it's happened and the spirit has been poured out. So why is this important? I, I, I think that, you know, it's pretty clear that God's been leading us into deeper understanding of the Holy Spirit. You know, I think this is a good, a good step for us this, this year. It's understanding, first of all, that the Spirit is really the climax of the gospel. The, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, is the climax, the, the final touch on the story of the gospel. Right? It's, it's where Peter starts. And it's where he ends up. And so, repent so that you can receive the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who sees us, sees our hearts, sees our sin. It's the Spirit who convicts us of that sin. Wake up, you know. You're sinning. And it's killing you and it's killing everyone in your path. It's bringing a curse into the earth. The Spirit exposes us to the devastating effects of our rebellion. The Spirit calls us to wake up and realize what's happening. The Spirit softens our hearts. The Spirit cuts us to our hearts and calls us to true returning and true repentance. As we repent and turn toward God in faith, he cleanses us, purifies us from all unrighteousness. The holy fire of the Spirit purifies us and purges us and destroys the enemies of God that exist in our own lives the thoughts that exalt themselves against the lordship of Jesus. The Spirit comes, purifies us. He destroys anything in us and purifies from anything in us that 
that brings a curse into the earth. The Spirit renews and restores. The Spirit is the rain that comes on the land and causes life to grow once more. The Spirit heals that which sin has destroyed. And ultimately, the Spirit is the very presence of God in our lives. God is with us in the Holy Spirit, and it's the Spirit who flows out of our hearts into the world to do what God's always wanted to do for his people, which is to restore creation, restore this good, good world that God created. And to, but it doesn't happen except by the Holy Spirit. But now, in the people of God who have received the Holy Spirit, we can now, in our own lives, live it, live the life that he created us to live, But then through us, the new creation springs forth wherever the people of God go. Remember in Ezekiel, the little trickle, it starts coming out of the temple of God, and it spreads through the whole land. That's who we are. That's who the Holy Spirit is in our lives. And so I think the the call tonight is to recognize the significance of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit as gospel believers, right? And this is, it's so simple, but it seems like it kind of gets forgotten, you know? Jesus died, Jesus was raised, so that he could pour out the Spirit into our lives, right? Jesus saved us, Jesus granted us repentance, we were baptized so that we could be filled with the Spirit, because it's, it's only in the Spirit that we can be that people of God that actually do bring blessing into the earth and life. That is, that's the source of, of all life. Amen? So Joel is pointing us toward the ultimate desire of God to, by his Spirit, dwell in the midst of his people. Peter says, Jesus made that possible, and that is the good news And that is what those 3,000 souls received and embraced. And it's why that all of us are now standing in this room, because they embraced that, and the Spirit sent them out with that gospel. To all who are far off, to everyone who the Lord would call to himself. Amen? All right. I think we can uh, can eat and drink to that. Yeah? Yeah? Um, it says that, that God, in his, in his renewal, will give a grain offering and a drink offering. I think we should come to the table and say, thank you, Lord, for granting us a grain offering and a drink offering in the renewal that he's brought about in his death and resurrection. Amen.